This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 15. This is Writing Excuses Technology. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. I'm Mahatab. And we are talking tech today on Writing Excuses. So we did... <laughs> After a fashion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we did a whole uh, month on magic systems, so let's talk about technology this time around. Um, how do you go about, Howard, you write the most science fiction. Dan does a lot too. But how do you go about developing technology for your stories? Uh, it's, it, honestly, this is one of those questions that has become a little bit like, where do you get your ideas? Uh-huh. Because I've been doing it for so long, it's just an ongoing part of, of everything I do. Everything I read, I mean, I read a lot of, of tech stuff. Um, I watch documentaries. I, I listen to uh, audiobook uh, audiobooks about you know history and war and and whatever else, um, and all of that goes into the hopper. So that when I am asking a question like, well, in World War One, when the machine gun first saw the battlefield, there were people who thought the war would be over in twenty minutes because that is how long it will take us to fire enough bullets to have killed everybody on the other side at the rate of one bullet per person. And we look at that now and we say, well, that's patently ridiculous. Nobody could possibly think that, um, except there were people who did. And we look back at the Second World War, and the, or the First World War, and the way technology changed those things. That is the sort of discussion I'm having in my head all the time. I want to look at the... I want to look at the implications of a technology, but I don't want to be the guy who thinks that the war is going to end in a week because that's how long it will take us to shoot enough bullets. Mm. That is really a smart way of putting it. Um, I really like the history of warfare paralleling the history of technology. World War I is one of those really interesting moments where the technology changed faster than our ability to understand how to use that technology changed. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember listening to a podcast about how they were just dumbfounded by how much the war had changed and nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody knew what they were doing. Um, on a more pleasant note, mm -hmm. uh, today we look at, we look at greenhouse gases and carbon emissions and, you know, there's a lot of people writing, uh, peak oil sorts of apocalypse stories. Um, I have... 99 cent solar powered lights in my yard. I say 99 cent. I replaced some of them, got them at Walmart, 69 cents. I have solar powered lighting for 69 cents. And I realized any post-apocalyptic fiction that's set after, oh, about 2020, if you don't have the lights on all the time, you probably haven't thought ahead far enough because of what solar is doing. And so these kinds of implications, I'm always, always spinning them because it's so cool. So how about you guys? Um, when you're looking at writing a science fiction story, uh, guessing about the future, 
Uh, how do you adapt m current technology when you're looking forward? Well, you know, trying to write for um, younger adults, I, you know, I try and take the technology but make it more uh, accessible and more palatable. One of the things that really excited me was the Mars One project that was, you know, started about two or three years ago. And the whole concept of this was, this is a one-way trip. And I think it caught the world's interest as well because you had so many applicants and then they had to go through, through these interviews. And I used to look at YouTube videos of people posting what they had to learn. And, you know, then it was individual and then it was a group and stuff like that. So I, for me, I actually took that as the starting point. I wrote a, a science fiction novel called Bionic because I wanted to, if it was a one-way trip, but then they needed the technology on Mars itself to be able to survive because the economies of getting stuff there would have been tough. So then I paired it with 3D printing. And in fact, just recently I read an article where a company is sending a 3D printer to the International Space Station. So there, you know, the, the only thing that you really have to do is keep an eye out um, to all the technology, wired, uh, DARPA, uh, just, just keep your eyes open, uh, read, and then just change it to your audience and make a story. Uh, three or four years ago, I was in a panel at a convention where we were talking about colonizing Mars. And, uh, you know, ev everybody pointed out, it's not, not, not obvious, uh, we are the civilization that throws robots at other planets <laughs> and lands them there successfully. And it's only a matter of time before we're throwing robots at other planets and they are robots who are able to make other robots. By the time humans get to Mars, the sorts of stories we may be telling are human cowboys who are robot wranglers riding wild robots <laughs> trying to rope them up, okay? <laughs> on the one hand, that's kind of ridiculous. There's your on writing the, prompt. On the other hand, that's a, that, would be a fun, that would be a fun story to write. And it grows very naturally out of this idea that it's something we're already doing. Yeah. So let me put uh, Dan and Mahatab on the spot here. Um, one thing we, I don't think, talk enough about on the podcast is specifically writing for young people. Uh, because, you know, our, our kind of uh, bias is toward the, uh, toward the adult market, I think. Um, specifically taking science fiction or technology, any hints on how to approach writing these things in a way that work for the age group? Um, how do you say you, you try to write the technology for the young people in a way that works in the story. How are you specifically doing this? Any suggestions? So with uh, with Zero G in the series there, I started off by trying to write hard SF. And the first book is, but none of the rest of the series will be. Um, but as I went through, what I was trying to do was, uh, you know, use real science in a way that looked cool. What can I do with zero gravity that will make kids go, wow, that's fun. I want to do that. What can I do with uh, spacewalks? What can I do with, um, you know, freeze-dried astronaut food? You know, all of, the, all of these aspects of space travel and all of these scientific principles, how can I use them in a way that looks fun like they're playing? And so that's how I structured the entire series was, okay, now they're on a planet. What can I do with the planet that looks fun but is still grounded in real science? And the combination of those two things, science and fun, is what drives the whole series for me. Well, I always focus on the character. Um, and whatever the technology does has to relate to what the character wants. So my main character in this, actually there are two main characters. One's an alien, 
uh, or a Martian, and one of them is a human. And Alex, who is one of the point of view, um, he hates technology. But it is the only way he's going to be able to survive in space and look for his parents who are missing. And so I adapt the technology to the story, to the character, to what he needs, and also using it as a point of conflict. Now, I, I think I was just trying to see who, who else did that. And Andy Weir and Martian. I mean, there is a lot of science and technology involved there, but it all relates to how Mark Watney has to survive, mm-hmm. get to the... That what is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, shuttle mm-hmm. that's going to help him launch into space and then get picked up. But I mean, when I was reading the book, I realized getting kind of bogged down with all of the details that Andy had put in there, which I didn't get completely. But then, what I did get, if like if you just step back, it's like everything serves to to help this character escape from where he is or escape that difficult situation. And I think the movie did that pretty well. I, I, I really enjoy that because everything was about everything breaking down, but the character is resolving the issue. And it also helps us show the character's motivations and the will to survive. So I thought that was done pretty well. And that's why when I write for middle grade, it's not too many details, but however, the technology can help the character. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's stop for our book of the week, which you're actually going to tell us about. Yes. And my absolute, one of my favorites is uh, Feed by M.T. Anderson. Um, And it was actually written in 2002, but it was way ahead of its time. Um, It focuses on issues like corporate power, consumerism, information technology, data mining, pretty much what Google does these days. And he had predicted this way back in 2002. So the story uh, revolves around this one character called Titus. And the the novel starts with, we went to the moon to have fun, but the moon turned out to suck, which is one of the most brilliant (laughs) opening lines I have ever heard, which is why I've memorized it. Uh, But they go there and all of these, about 73% of the Americans have got a chip in their brain, which is called the feed. And it basically helps these corporations to profile the, the candidates and basically give them experiences that would help with, with profiling them and helping them shop and living a certain lifestyle and giving the data back to the corporations. Uh, but at one point, when they go to the moon, the feed gets corrupted. And um, Titus and his friends um, manage to get the feed uh, working again. But one of the friends that he meets out there, Violet, is a kind of a rebel. And she does. She tries to fight the feed, and the story is about their relationship and what happens in the end. It's. A, I don't want to give up the spoiler because you just have to read it. Whoever's listening, you have to read it. Excellent, and that's by M. T. Anderson. Anderson. Feed. So one of the things that technology we've we've kind of been focusing on presaging the future, but I don't think that's the only way technology can work in science mm-hmm. fiction fantasy stories. I think it's some of my favorite science fiction stories from the the first part of the 20th century, and none of those got very much right. Yeah. Um, my favorite science fiction story of all time is Harris Bergeron, 
um, by Kurt Vonnegut. And that, you know, imagines a world that did not come to pass, right? But you don't read that story and say, oh, he got it wrong. You read that story as a sort of metaphor for the life he was uh, looking at, the world mm-hmm. he, as he was looking at. So um, we've already talked on the podcast a little bit about a metaphor in science fiction. But let me ask you about this. Um, using technology as a metaphor, using technology as a MacGuffin, uh, using technology as conflict. How do you do this in your stories? One of the things that fascinates me about technology is taking a look at who created it and and what biases or what um, you know what kind of flavor they are adding to it, whether consciously or subconsciously. And so, for example, look at Facebook. Facebook has come to completely define our society in a lot of ways, but Facebook was created by a college sophomore, and it defines itself, and by extension, our society, in the things that were important to a college sophomore. How many friends do you have? What do they like? What are their favorite movies? Like, those are really kind of unimportant things in terms of broader adult social interaction, but that's how the technology was subconsciously created and now it's changing the way we all interact with each other. Hmm. That is fascinating and a little scary to it think It is about. a little scary. Along those same lines, um, if you look at, uh, this is actually an, an idea that Ted Chang posited, which is that everyone who writes about artificial intelligence and the singularity is kind of exposing not only their own fears, but their own kind of dark side. Uh, if you look at the way that tech people in Silicon Valley talk about the perils of artificial intelligence, it's because they're imagining an artificial intelligence that will do all of the things people are afraid that giant tech companies are going to do, mm-hmm. right? That right. If, a, if a program becomes sentient, it's going to start profiling us and controlling what we buy. And well, that's kind of what they're all doing anyway. And so they, we tend to see ourselves reflected in our technology and in our fears about technology. And so looking at who created this and what were they trying to accomplish and what did they accidentally put into it without realizing, I think really helps draw that metaphor out. Um, I don't know if you all remember seeing the Black Mirror uh, episode number one, which was Nosedive. And that is entirely exactly what you said, which is people are so concerned with social media. So you have the society where everyone has to be nice to everyone else so that they can get likes or credits. And if you go below a certain level of credits, you're not allowed to associate with certain people. You don't get certain privileges. Uh, You know, there's a girl who wanted to attend her best friend's wedding and she was supposed to be the, the bridesmaid or the maid of honor. And she couldn't because her credits fell. And she just kept trying to, so it's called nosedive. But this, it hit home so well when you talk about, you know, people being so clued in, like you put up something on, on social media and that's, you just want the likes you want, you know, and it, it's, it's just changing the perceptions of people and how they interact. Like if, if you ever go to a, you know, if you're ever on public transport, no one is looking at each other these days. Everyone is glued to their, you know, it, it, to, to their smartphones or whatever it's 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 a different world it's a completely different world i don't know if they know how to talk that's (laughs) what scares me (laughs) i may be dating myself but it scares me that you know makeup and breakups are all done on the phone the uh another uh interesting implication i've been uh i've been watching a lot of episodes well 
listening to while I draw a lot of episodes of uh, Forensics Files um, or Forensic Files, which has completely destroyed my enjoyment of any of the shows like, you know, CSI or Bones or anything like that, because because this is just this is the real science. This is the real thing. And they will talk about historical cases. You know, this was the first time that a death penalty was adjudicated based on DNA evidence. This is the first time that a conviction was overturned based on DNA evidence. Uh, And one of the things that came up that was fascinating, uh, and it's happened several times in the show, uh, someone will say, yeah, I was uh, I was trying to figure out where this guy had been, and then I remembered watching this this episode of Forensic Files where they determined where he'd been based on bugs in the radiator, and so I went and looked at his motorcycle and looked for bugs. And the meta is pretty deep when a when a TV show about crime science is has somebody referencing that show in finding a different criminal but the show's been running for 30 years and it has influenced itself not only to the point that it is helping people, you know, open their minds to the way they solve cases, but it's also hurting prosecutors who don't happen to have DNA evidence. And the jury is like, well, where's your DNA? Everybody's got DNA now. Uh, No, there's actually, DNA doesn't get stuck to everything. You can't get DNA from a fingerprint. I mean, maybe if you licked it. (laughs) Um, what's fun about that, uh, is that that is forensic science in general is this intersection of all of the sciences, you know, material sciences, uh, spectroscopy, you, you heat something up and shine lights through it and see what the spectrum is. Okay, great. That's how we know what things are made of. Now we do spectroscopy on a piece of uh, lint we found on you and a piece of lint we found on the murder victim and find out that both of them were exact same batches of carpet. And, well, that means that you and the murder victim were on the same patch of carpet at some point, doesn't it? Um, watching that stuff, for me, is great for homework because there are all of these disciplines. Forensic geology. There are forensic geologists. They just studied sand in tires. <laughs> Speaking of homework, Dan, you hey, have homework. That's right. Okay, so we've been talking about all these really cool technologies. What we would like you to do today is go out and find one. Uh, this is less of a writing thing than it is research. Go read an issue of Wired. Go, uh, Mahatab mentioned DARPA. Go study what they're doing. Go Read a bunch of stuff, find a new technology or a new use of a technology, and then imagine how it could go wrong. Start jotting down potential conflicts that that could create or extremes that that could be taken to and just really let your imagination run wild with it. Excellent. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. 
Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 